welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Restoration Foursquare Church audio podcast. We pray that you're having a great week so far. Stay tuned for today's message. Enjoy, and God bless. Passage is normally used 
as a way or like a mini instruction manual for how wives and husbands should behave, for lack of a better phrase, in marriage. It gives us kind of the basic instructions of a man and a woman in the role or inside of a marriage. But today, however, we're going to be shifting it just a little bit. It's going to look a little bit different. We're still going to be talking about husband and wife, but we're going to be focusing on it in just a little different way. We're going to be talking about how Jesus is actually at the center of it all. Jesus is the primary. He's the core. He's the one. He's the glue that holds everything together. It's Jesus at the center of it all. And the most foundational relationship we have in this life is the marriage relationship. And I say that, don't throw a stone at me. Of course, God is the number one relationship out of all of them. But when it comes to human interaction, the most foundational relationship that we have is the marriage relationship. If you don't have a marriage, you don't have a society. If you don't have a society, we all go extinct just like the dodo bird. So the, the, the marriage is the most foundational entity in our society. However, it's nothing if it's not glued together by the bond of Jesus Christ. The marriage relationship should be saturated with Jesus Christ. And if the most foundational relationship that we have should be saturated and bathed in Jesus Christ, then obviously every relationship that follows should be bathed in Jesus Christ as well. And the visual that I kind of got for this description or for this relationship is I was a lad at some point in time. I was a young boy at some point in time. And I was at my home. And I used to, when I was at home, we had this mud puddle at the very front of my, our yard. Now, I'm a city boy, so I, we didn't have a lake. So this mud puddle was the best thing that we had is what I had to roll with. So in this mud puddle, there would be maybe a worm or a bug or whatever. But the thing that fascinated me the most about this mud puddle is when I would take a rock or a pebble and drop it into the mud puddle, there would be a, there would be a ripple effect. And the ripple would start, even if I dropped it right in the middle, it would start in the middle, but they always made, the, made themselves out to the end of the puddle. They always flowed out to the end of the puddle. It just always seemed to amaze me. What a ripple is, it's simply a transfer of energy from the rock or pebble to the water. All a ripple is, as soon as that rock hits that water, energy is transferred and dispersed. So that rock in the middle of the water made the ripple every single time. Now, imagine with me, what if that rock, let that rock be Jesus' influence on you and your relationship. Just Jesus' influence on your life. And imagine the ripple represents the relationship that you have. Now, the most important relationship, again, is the marriage relationship. But then after the marriage relationship, you've got family, you've got friends, coworkers, neighbors, colleagues, so on and so forth. But if Jesus is the pebble that's dropped into the water, his influence should be spreading as soon as he hits, and then his influence shall spread to every single area of our life, every single relationship, from the marriage to the children to the family, so on and so forth. So, but despite how you may be connected to someone, if Jesus is not at the center of your life, or if you're not allowing him to influence your relationships, 
none of your relationships will ever reach their full potential. So by allowing Jesus to live at the center of your relationships, you are allowing his power, his influence, and his love to radiate and bless each one of your relationships. And through submission and love, Jesus shows us how to truly live out our relationships in a way that is in complete and total alignment with the very nature of God. Amen? So let's look at verses 21 through 24 again. They read, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, you'll notice that Jesus seems to sneak himself into each and every one of these verses. Even though this is talking about, we always think it is wives. It's the first word we just go to, wives. But if you notice in verse 21, there's a reference to Christ. In verse 22, there's a reference to Christ. Verse 23 and 24, there's a reference to Jesus Christ. And I think it's kind of interesting that it does that. Every single verse has this reference, and here what Jesus is trying to influence or try to show us, he is trying to display how he lived or how he loved through the act of submission. Now, this cuss word typically is not allowed in most households today. In most churches, when you hear this cuss word, submit, everybody starts running or fleeing or something. It's just like, I can't believe you just, you just said that word. In the pulpit. That word just came out of his mouth in the pulpit. And then you start to hear the grumblings and the mumblings and the murmurings. Like, he need to wash his mouth off with soap. He just said the worst word in the world. Submit. Submit. And it's just like, oh, gosh. No, it's not that bad. But we have to know that the devil is good at his job. What do I mean by that? One of Satan's favorite tasks, hands down, one of his favorite tasks as a deceiver of man is for to make something that God meant as a blessing look like a curse. When people hear the word submit, let me tell you what they actually hear. Weak, chump, punk, what is that? Rug, stepping on them, taking advantage of, loss of control. All these different things are what people hear when they hear the word submit. Am I right? That's what we hear. But let me tell you, when Jesus looks at submission, that's not what he sees. He doesn't see it that way. Now, I want to show you what, how Jesus views submission. Let's turn to Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 36. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 36 gives us a crystal clear image of how Jesus looks at submission. And it reads, now they went to a place, they being Jesus and the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And, they, and he, that being Jesus, began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he said to them, stay here and keep watch. 
going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What did Jesus just do in this passage? He submitted. He submitted. Now, let me ask you one question. In this moment, in this passage, was Jesus a weak person? I don't think he was weak. His flesh may have been weak, falling on his face, but his spirit man was strong. Another question. Was Jesus God's underling or just so beneath God in this moment? No, he wasn't. He was God's partner in history's most amazing love story. He was his partner, not his underling or his sidekick or anything like that. His partner. Another question. Did Jesus lose control in this moment? He did. But he was only practicing what he preached. Because in Matthew 16 and verse 24, he says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And so what he said, he did. He denied himself, not my will, but your will be done. He's showing us that a holy life is a surrendered life. And a blessed life is a surrendered life. Last question. Was Jesus being taken advantage of by God? Was he that rug or that doormat that God was using to clean his feet off and just get his own job done? He wasn't. He wasn't at all. God, Jesus knew that God's plan was perfect. He can be trusted in all ways, in every situation. Jesus knew that if God desired it, then it must be good. Even if that meant him dying on the cross. So Jesus didn't see submission as an act of weakness or humiliation or abomination or a cuss word like we sometimes like to think of it. No, he saw it as an act of obedience and love. Don't allow Satan to distort your image of what true submission looks like. If God is the father, if God the father can use submission to accomplish his will and fulfill his will, then submission is an amazing gift to the body of Christ and to us as individuals. So when Jesus is telling us to submit one to another in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, he isn't telling you to do anything that he hasn't already done and he hasn't and he won't do. So instead of running from submission, just go ahead and embrace it. Just go ahead and say, you know what? It's not a gift, it's a curse. Just like we're saying, I'm not depressed anymore, I've got the victory, just go ahead and tell yourself that submission is a gift from God. Now, have people abused this gift in the past? Yes. Have people abused people who were submissive in the past? Yes. But guess what? Every gift from God has been abused in the past, whether it be tongues, whether it be prophecy, whether it be your hands, whether it be your feet, whether it be your mouth, Every gift has been abused by man in the past. So again, we cannot allow our, our, somebody else's sin to dictate what we think about God's word. As an act of faith, we just should submit to the necessary people in our life. Man, that was kind of good. In our life. 
<laughs> Wives, submit to your husband. We should submit to our friends. I submit to Pastor Jackson. We just should do it. And it's as, and as 521 says, it says submit, but it says it one to another out of reverence for Christ. So out of your love for the Lord Jesus, just the act of submission is a gift and it's not a curse. Allow God to work through your submission. Allow God to change your circumstances through your submission. Allow God to transform your mind through submission. Allow Jesus to reside at the center of your relationship. And if you allow him to do that, then submission won't be, I can't say it won't be as hard, but it will be, it will be a blessing. The pain will have a, pro, it have a promise attached to it. Um, and you'll be blessed. And all of your relationships will be blessed. Amen. So we're not gonna, it's not a cuss word anymore, okay? We can say it and not get in trouble. But before I go any further, I do need to pause for a minute. Because I realize that I've, I feel like I've said Jesus' name so many times today. And there's so many times in this message. More times than normal. So I want to pause and I want to, if I'm saying that Jesus needs to be the center of your life, he needs to be the center of your relationships, he needs to be the center of your heart, I feel like it makes sense for us to actually know who Jesus is, actually understand who he is. So I have to ask you a somewhat rhetorical question. Who is Jesus? And when you ask that, when you try to answer it in your mind, try to describe, try to describe who Jesus is without using a single cliche. Don't say he's the lover of my soul, he's the lily in the valley, he's the bright morning star. Don't say he's my best friend. No, like just, just, just press pause on all those for just a moment. Because, see, a lot of people can say the right things with their mouth. They can rehearse the same old sayings over and over again, but they're actually covering up their greatest deficiency, an actual revelation of who Jesus is. So can you explain who Jesus is by using facts and bare sentences? Just think about that for just a minute. Because before I continue, I've got to let you know about Jesus. If, I've got, if I'm going to let you know why he should be at the center of your life, we've got to get an understanding of who he is. So who was Jesus? Jesus was a first century Palestinian Jew. He lived during the time of Julius Caesar the uh, emperor of Rome, and Pontius Pilate, a local governor. He was known for healing the sick, raising the dead, and performing amazing miracles. But the interesting thing is this. Jesus claimed to be God. Now, because we've been in church for so long, we kind of just say, okay, Jesus claimed to be God. But let me ask you, if as soon as I hit 30 years old, as soon as my 30th birthday came around, and I started saying, hey, everybody, guess what? I'm God. What would you all think? Blaspheme. Crazy person. Run away, run away. Unclean, unclean. <laughs> all these different things will start coming up into your mind. So you can imagine that when Jesus seemingly out of nowhere just busts on the scene and just says, I am God, in not so many words, what, do, what reaction do people have? Crazy person. Oh, he's filled with Satan. He's a lunatic. All these different things. So he claimed to be God. And this claim to everyone seemed to be insane and absurd. Didn't make any sense. 
And not only, like Lady D said, was it insane and absurd, it was blasphemous. So the leaders of that time saw Jesus as a blasphemer. Yeah, their hearts were evil and their hearts were wicked and all these other things. But at the core, one of the core principles is that he is taking on the name of God and he is a mere human. He's wrapped in the same flesh and bone that we are and he's claiming to be divinity. Crucify him. Take him out. Kill him. He's a curse. He's a cancer. He's not fit to be a part of us. He's not fit to be alive. The punishment for blasphemy was death. So the leaders of his time had him flogged and had him hung on the cross to be crucified. They mercilessly whipped him. They took what's called a cat of nine tails. So imagine like a pom-pom made out of metal. A pom-pom made out of metal. And on the end of the pom-pom strings, you've got tiny pieces of metal that are like little, little, little itty-bitty balls. And every time one of those balls hits you, it will pop your skin and a blood vessel will pop up. Make it red. And then on top of that, on the other strings, what you had is pieces of bone and shards of glass. So every time one of the balls of metal hits you, you would have these shards of glass coming against you, scraping all that blood out and scraping everything just so it could be as painful as possible. This is crucifixion. This is what happened. And he got whipped over and over and over again. He got hit over and over and over again. And then after all of that, so many times when people would get, when people, the crucifixion process started with the flogging and it ended with the cross. But so many times people never even made it to the cross. Because if you can imagine just being whipped over and over and over again, sometimes people's whole entire ribcage would collapse on itself. Sometimes blood would just be, they would die from suffocation or they would die from blood loss. But this is what this man endured. And he took up his cross and he walked to a hill. He was crucified, whipped, hung on the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is one of the most, if not the most, attested facts of all of ancient history. Jesus was not just a fairy tale. It wasn't just a co-happenstance or something that somebody made up. You can ask any historian, Christian or non-Christian, was the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ a real thing? Virtually every hand will raise up and say, yes, it was. So this man did not just, we did not simply make him up. He literally went through this, and he was literally crucified. Now, although Jesus was killed on the cross, something amazing happened. A few days after his burial, there were some mumblings and some rumblings that Jesus Christ, the guy who had just been crucified, whipped mercilessly, had somehow, some way, come back to life. Somehow able to walk. Even if he had come back to life, the fact he's able to walk. But he's able to do this. Somehow, some way, Jesus has, has become the first man ever to beat death. But again, Jesus didn't claim to just be a man. What else did he claim? I am God. I am the resurrection and the life. He claimed to be both fully God and fully man. Jesus dying on the cross and then being resurrected from the dead validated his claims of divinity. But why? What was the purpose? What was the motive? Why did all of this happen? Why would God come down to earth, 
Why would he come down to be with people like you and I? Well, Jesus gives us, the, the Lord gives us a little bit of a hint in the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Genesis 1, 27 reads, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. <clears throat> so as a human being, you are an image bearer of God. Whether you're gay, whether you're straight, whether you're black, white, Mexican, whether you're disabled, sick, healed, rich, poor, whether you're a college student, whether you're a child, whether you're deaf, whether you're blind, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. If you are a human being, you bear the image of God. When God looks at us, he should see a reflection of himself. However, like a broken mirror, we as a race are cracked, scuffed, dented, and discombobulated. To sum it up, we as a human race are a collection of broken individuals. The image we reflect is not one of God, but it's one of strife, it's one of murder, it's one of chaos, it's one of pride, it's one of selfishness, it's one of sin, it's one of lust. And at best, the only thing we can really produce is an imperfect mess. But now since the human race is an imperfect race, we have a massive problem on our hands. If God is perfect and we are imperfect, we have a problem. We have a problem because imperfect and perfect don't actually mix. They actually can't come together. And we are imperfect people deserving to be wiped out by a perfect God. Every lie has to be accounted for. Every evil thought has to be accounted for. Every abusive touch has to be accounted for. Every lustful act must be punished. But in spite of our imperfections, we still bear God's image. Like the $100 bill that's been wrinkled up and crinkled up and scrunched up, even when you uncrinkle it up, it still has the same value. It still has the same value. So out of all the things that God created, because we still bear his image, we have a special place in his heart and in his mind. Not because of anything we've done, but just simply because of who we are. Isn't it nice to be loved just because of who you are? I mean, you ain't got to earn no brownie points with nobody. You ain't got to keep no list of what you've done lately. You just love just for who you are. Isn't that nice? Versus condition. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to say the right thing. You can't make a mistake. You can't do none of that. You just love simply just because of who you are. You know the deepest relationships you have in this life are the ones with the people who know all about you and they still love you. They know your wins. They know your losses. They know your embarrassment. They know some of the stuff you want to tell people and some of the stuff you ain't never told hardly anybody. Those people who are still close to you in spite of knowing all that are usually the deepest relationships that we have. And God the Father loves his people because he knows all of that. He knows everything that we've done. He knows everything that both you and I have done. The problem is, is that we're still broken people. So the question is, how can a perfect God maintain a relationship with his people, both now and in the life to come, even though he is perfect 
and cannot be in the, some, in the presence of something that is imperfect. I'm going to repeat that question. How can a perfect God maintain a relationship with his people, both now and in the life to come, even though he is perfect and cannot be in the presence of something that is imperfect? Well, the answer is this. God the Father made a trade with us. Remember that man Jesus we were talking about a few, few paragraphs ago, a few slides back? Well, he was crucified by the Roman Empire, left for dead. But somehow, someway, he rose just a few days later. And since Jesus was fully God and fully man, he could die on our behalf. And though Jesus Christ, uh, and through Jesus Christ, God made a divine trade with us. He, being Jesus, traded out our imperfect nature. He took our imperfect nature and gave us his perfect nature. Jesus died with our imperfections, our sins, our lust, our wrongdoing, all on his back so that we could exchange what he did for his righteousness and for his perfection. Every lie that you've ever told, every person that you've ever hurt, every heart that you've carelessly broken, all of that. Every single thing was laid at the, was Jesus took care of it. So every time one of those cat of nine tails came on his back and whipped him, he had you in mind and he had your sin in mind. Every single time that somebody spit on him and called him names and laughed at him and mocked him, they laughed at him and they mocked him. He had you in mind. When he laid there on the cross, he had us in mind. He knew the trade that was going to take place. Every foot that Jesus walked carrying that pain and cross, he pained with that cross on his back. He did it with you and me in mind. Jesus died once so we wouldn't have to die twice. Because Jesus lives, we now also can live. All we have to do is repent and believe in the work of Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus? Jesus was a first century Jew who both was both fully God and fully man. He died on the cross so that our biggest problem, death and the grave, would be defeated. And because of Jesus, our sins are now taken to the grave and our eternity can be spent with God as long as we repent and believe in the work of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? He is the man who loved us when we were unlovable. He was the man who forgave us when we were unforgivable. He is the man who was tortured and died on our behalf so that we might have life. He died so that we could live. He is the ultimate lover of our souls. And this is why we go crazy during praise and worship. This is why we go completely insane. Because when I think about all the things that I've done, when I think about the army that I could build or the skeletons in my closet, when I think about the grace and mercy of Jesus and I think about forgiving, 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 I might just go a little bit, got to hold myself. This is why. This is why y'all see Lady D going around and around and around and around. This lady is, all, I ain't going to tell her age, y'all, but she's got enough energy in Jesus that, that, that could feel about 10 different churches because she knows that she knows that she knows that she knows that the trade took place. I was once dead, but now I am alive. I was once dead, but now I'm alive. 
Now, why did I spend so much time talking about Jesus and going over who he is? It's a reason. There's a method to that madness. Let's read verses 25 through 30 in Ephesians. It says, Husbands, love your right wife, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Just as Christ loved everybody who he died for. Just as Christ loved everyone who he was whipped for. Just as Christ loved everybody who he was spit on for. Just as Christ loved everybody who manipulated and tortured and bruised him. Husbands, love your wife with that type of love. Christ gave himself up for his church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing by the washing with the water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but as holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. I just spent so much time talking about who Jesus is because these verses make no sense if you have no clue who Jesus is. These verses make no sense if you have no idea how committed Jesus was to his people, to their salvation, and to their sanctification. These verses make no sense if you don't understand what he went through for both you and I. In light of this knowledge, and in light of knowing who Jesus is, when he says, husbands, love your wife just as I love the church, it's not talking about fun feelings and just good thoughts all the time. He's talking about when all hell is breaking loose, when things don't make any sense, when there's no way, no shape, no how, you get on your knees and you begin to sanctify your household. You begin to cleanse your household. You begin to make a way when it seemed like no way. Jesus don't know no defeat. He only knows victory. So when defeat is at the house of your home, you say, no, no, no. My Savior has victory. He has victory. And he expects you as a husband to love your wife, to cleanse your wife, to cleanse your home, to sanctify, and to have a labor of love, to persevere, to not quit. Will you be punished? Will it feel hurtful? Will it feel painful? It don't matter. He expects the best of us as husbands. He expects us to labor in love and to wash our family and to sanctify and to present our wife and our children before him. Lord, I'll clean them up. Lord, they are renewed by your blood. Lord, I did my job. That's what Jesus sees when he sees a husband. That's what he sees when he sees a husband. Jesus doesn't do failure. So when Jesus says that you are, when you say, when you agree to be a husband, you know what you're saying? You're saying the success and or the failure of this marriage is on my shoulders. The success and or the failure of this marriage is my burden to care. The success or the failure of this marriage is my responsibility. And you take it just like Jesus Christ takes the church and you begin to bathe that family in love. You begin to wash over that family in love. You begin to do a beautiful work like Christ Jesus is doing with us each and every single day. 
Christ nurtures and he cares for us. So as husbands, we've got to nurture and care for our families, care for our children, care for our loved ones. But we've got to do it with Jesus at the center. None of this makes any sense if we have no clue how powerful Jesus' love is for us. And I know this is a hard teaching. I know it's hard. It's easy in him. You can't be stealing stuff too soon, Vaughn. It's hard. It's a hard teaching because, let me say this, why are so many marriages failing? It's because when hard times come, it's actually unnatural. It's unnatural to lay down your own life for your family's life. It's unnatural to say, I'm going to leave what I'm doing and go to be with my family. It's easy to press the eject button. It's unnatural. We're expecting, we're expecting fathers and husbands and, 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 and all these different people to do something that's completely unnatural to them. Completely unnatural to them. But it's natural and it's so much easier in Christ Jesus. It can be done with Jesus at the center of it. And that's why if you notice that Jesus was in every verse we just read. In verse 25, he says, as Christ loved the church, he cleansed us. Every single verse has a, it's pointing back to Jesus. It's pointing back to Jesus. It's pointing back to Jesus. So if Jesus is the center of it all, you can make it. You can wash your family. You can cleanse them. You can be the love that your family needs. But you can't do this stuff outside of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. You can't do it with any real effectiveness. You can try, and you can try, and you can try, but that burden is so hard for anyone to carry. It's so hard if Jesus is not at the center of your heart and your relationships. So to the husbands, to the future husbands, to the fathers, And to the men who is under the sound of my voice, this type of sacrificial, unconditional love is begging to be displayed in this world. It's begging to be displayed through us. It's begging to be displayed. And God is calling each and every one of us to display it. He's calling us to display it to our wives. He's calling us to display it to our children, and he's calling us to display it to our communities. Are you willing to accept the call? Again, you can't really do any of this with any real effectiveness if Jesus is not at the center of your heart. So I've got to ask, where is Jesus in your life? Please be honest with yourself. So many times we just like to rationalize ourselves. When I was praying over this, I, had, I asked Jesus himself, I said, Lord, where are you in my life? Because I don't even want to fool myself into thinking, oh, yeah, you are right here. When in actuality, he may be way over here. You know, is he really at the center of your life? Or is he a passing thought? Or is he even associated with you? Think about the consequences. Think about what's happening. Jesus, are you at the center of my life? And all I want to do today is encourage, encourage you 
to allow Jesus to be the center of your life. Allow his influence to create a ripple effect in your life. That not only it touches your heart and your mind, but it touches your family. It touches your community. It touches everyone who you're connected to. And will it cost you something? Absolutely it's going to cost you something. Because if Jesus is not at the center of your heart, guess what? Something else is. And whatever that something else is, don't want to move. And so it's going to fight and kick and scream and holler and yell until you, by your own authority and by your own power that God has given you, say, you do not belong at the throne of my heart. It belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, will that cost you something? Absolutely. But ask yourself this. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? I cannot make that decision for you, nor do I want to. I'm not, we're not in manipulation. Lord, no, that's not what we're doing. But you be honest with yourself. Jesus, where are you? Ask yourself, is it worth dethroning whatever's on my heart right now and putting Jesus there? Is he deserving of being the center of it all? And I believe absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, if it was not for Jesus, if it was not for what he was doing, I don't, I don't know how people make it without Jesus. I'm like, I'm like I, don't, I, don't, I wasn't making it before Jesus. I think I was just falling. I was just perpetual steps and falling and falling and falling and falling. But man, with Jesus, we've got victory. We've got joy. We've got a hope for tomorrow. Our greatest problem is death and the grave. It's so peaceful to know that my greatest problem has been taken care of. So ask yourself, Jesus, where are you in my life? And that concludes today's sermon. Thanks again for tuning in to the Restoration Foursquare Church audio podcast. We pray that you have been encouraged and empowered in your journey of following Jesus. If you would like to learn more about Restoration Church, please visit us on our website by going to r4sq.org. We pray you have a great week. God bless.